Alexander Price, and you're listening to The Number Station. For this episode, I have the distinct pleasure to interview Greg Jones, who is an adjunct assistant professor in the Center for Security Studies at Georgetown University and the CEO of a crisis management consultancy called Strategic Applications. Greg's bio at Georgetown says that he specializes in crisis management, insurgency, counterinsurgency, counterterrorism, spontaneous crisis volunteerism effects, the future of war, humanitarian emergency response, and civil military operations. And so uh, I invited him on to talk about his uh, consultancy work and, gener- and more generally the practice of crisis management. And I'll let him introduce himself in a moment in a little more detail. But first, uh, uh, just a brief explanation about uh, the relevance of this, of crisis management, to the theme of the show, which is about um, mysticism and the intelligence community. In a recent episode, which I called Meditations on Hell, I spoke a bit about the religious symbolism of hell, where people who were the victims of Nazi oppression, especially the the Jewish victims of Nazi oppression, made sense of their experiences in terms of Jewish religious narratives. It's not something that's unique to Judaism. It also happened in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki when the um, with the the bombing of those cities at the end of World War II. Uh, the people who survived those bombings made sense of their experience in uh, using the language and the terminology and the narratives about uh, the Buddhist version of hell. So I suppose in that episode I kind of started exploring the overlaps between mythology and reality, um, religious symbols that are often rooted in people's historical experiences, which then become, over time, allegorized and turned into symbols, but then those symbols become reawakened when the when they meet with uh, actual circumstances uh, similar to um, the original trauma, I suppose. So the Hebrew Bible, uh, you know, the, the, uh, what the Christians call the Old Testament, um, is, is significantly about crisis. And perhaps it seems boring when you're studying it under ideal conditions, you know, when everything's going great. But then when tragedy does, does strike, these sto- you have these stories ready and they're there and you understand them in a whole new way. So in that sense, I consider hell both an experience that happens right here on earth in this life sometimes. And it, it's a very Jewish idea that like heaven isn't a place in outer space, that it's uh, a place that we can access here on this planet in the same way I'm interpreting hell as uh, an experience that people have here on earth in this life. So that's where the experience of crisis really brings together those religious narratives and mythologies and um, the more hands-on practical experience of managing a crisis. And I really do believe that having a religious faith or at least the symbolic components that can become religious faith when you need it, it can help a lot in a crisis. 
So in a nutshell, that's where I was coming from in asking him on the show in the first place. And I also just think it's really uh, amazing and interesting what he does. And if you do want to catch up on that background, I recommend the podcast um, called Meditations on Hell, which kind of goes into more detail with uh, with my mystical ramblings, I suppose. So before we uh, get started, I uh, just want to add a note of uh, housekeeping that um, one of our kind listeners requested that we might consider setting up a Patreon account. So if anybody wants to show their support for the show, they can. Um, I just launched our Patreon page yesterday, so it's pretty bare bones right now, but but we'll continue developing it over the next uh, few weeks and perhaps months. And if anybody has any suggestions or requests, uh, always please feel free to reach out. Um, the email is uh, dnaradiosignal at gmail.com. All one word, DNA radio signal. And then uh, the Patreon page itself is up. If you just go to Patreon and do a search for the number station, it is the only result that comes up, the number station with Alexander Price. Um, or you can also go directly to patreon.com slash the numbers station, uh, all one long word. Yeah, and anybody who is moved to contribute in any way, really, it's certainly much appreciated and will uh, uh, meaningfully contribute to keeping the podcast going. And um, and so with all that said, I want to say a special thanks to Greg for coming on, and I hope you all enjoy this as much as I do. I think you will. All right. Well, uh, welcome, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here with Alexander. Uh, my name's Greg Jones, and I am a uh, uh, crisis management consultant and also an adjunct assistant professor at Georgetown University. Alexander has asked me to give a little bit of background uh, information on my prior careers. Uh, so um, I uh, uh, began my professional life as a U.S. Army Special Forces officer and as a uh, military strategist, I served 21 years in the uh, in the Army. Uh, following that, after some uh, corporate uh, business uh, activities and uh, career stops, I uh, also did a second government career as a uh, senior civilian official uh, at the Department of Defense, in which I was heavily involved in creating and then leading the crisis management system uh, that we worked to put together uh, in the post-9-11 uh, era. Uh, so I served another uh, uh, 10 years as a uh, senior government uh, official in a civilian capacity, and um, I departed that role uh, approximately five years ago and began uh, both teaching and uh, consulting in the field of crisis management. Uh, my firm is called Strategic Applications LLC, and it is a global crisis management consulting firm that uh, tries to give advice particularly to senior executive teams on how to prepare for and respond to uh, large-scale crisis events. Uh, my teaching at Georgetown came out of a, um, a desire that I had when I left government to try to pass on some of the lessons and experiences that we had um, gone through in that post 9-11 era. Um, I hope we learned some lessons. We certainly uh, we certainly had some experiences. So um, I put uh, as much material as I could into some courses, and that has since expanded. There has been an appetite for that sort of subject matter. 
So I now teach in two graduate programs at Georgetown and across the uh, two programs I've developed and teach seven different uh, courses, all in some way related to crisis management preparedness uh, or response or uh, theories of emergency management. Uh, so that is a bit about my uh, background, and I'm, uh, I'm happy to say that I'm, I'm very busy at, uh, at trying to help uh, people get ready for the, uh, if you want to call it that, the bad day uh, that will uh, inevitably confront all of us in some form or another during our lifetimes. So when you say uh, large-scale crisis event, what are some examples of uh, uh, what that means? Which let, me let me throw a definition out there, and sure. then I'll I will um, I'll give some examples as you uh, as you ask. Um, a a crisis is, in at least my terminology, a significant event of unexpected onset mm -hmm. with uncertain outcomes and potentially lasting high consequences. Normally, a crisis is a casualty-producing event with continuing physical safety somewhat in doubt, and management of the event and the perception of the success or failure of that management can threaten to change the existing power structure or the existing order, if you will. Uh, so that's how I define a crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, I do that to separate it from all of life's uh, unfortunate events. While it may feel to an individual like it's a crisis when you can't find your car keys uh, yeah. and, are, and are late for a big uh, job interview, uh, that's not really what we're talking about here. We're talking about uh, events that certainly uh, make the headlines and uh, unfortunately do often cause damage or casualties and can uh, cause perceptions of incompetence or inefficiencies of the of the established either government or corporate or organizational order mm -hmm. uh, that those people in charge don't uh, have the best interests of the general populace at heart or are ineffective and that can lead to um, threats uh, downstream after the event uh, to change who's in charge or to uh, even investigate uh, how things were done. Uh, so those are the kinds of events that I'm talking about. Now, that uh, incorporates both natural disasters mm -hmm. and also events that are caused by uh, human, uh, human causes, if you will, which may be either accidental or malicious. So classically, in the, um, <clears throat> in the natural world, uh, we are very familiar with both both meteorological and geological events. So hurricanes, obviously, and uh, then uh, here in or tropical cyclones or typhoons, depending on where in the world you are, they're all the same kind of storm. Uh, geologically, earthquakes and volcanoes and their subsequent tsunamis, those certainly um, um, qualify. Mm -hmm. uh, among the man-made events, uh, examples of that, of course, are uh, terrorist attacks of any any stripe, be it 9/11 um, uh, scale or attempts to use a weapon of mass destruction, or attempts to even use small arms or edged weapons to cause uh, damage. That certainly can be uh, fall into the uh, into the categorization I made. Uh, accidental events can include things like the uh, Deepwater Horizon 
uh, oil oil rig explosion and subsequent leak, um, and um, uh, controversially, uh, things like the Bhopal gas leak in the 1980s in uh, in India. Um, all of those things fit within my uh, definition, and there are. Uh, numerous things that organizations and individuals can do to prepare for those kinds of events. There are also numerous things that can be done to respond to those kinds of events. Uh, but classically, um, we humans are great at procrastinating. Oh. We, we are comfort-loving animals, and we don't like to do uh, things that are uncomfortable. So uh, both individuals and organizations tend to procrastinate preparing for events and then that leads to uh, being um, if you want to use the informal term behind the eight ball or well behind the starting line when it's time for a response uh, because you're making up the ground and the activity of the things that you could have actually prepared for uh, so um, uh, sadly in this uh, modern world we are beset by many of these kinds of events, some of which are obviously human caused, some of which are not. And um, uh, it's my hope that what I can uh, pass along will help people get a bit more prepared and maybe be of help on that bad day. I'm curious, um, and at what point, is, is there some variation about at what point you generally enter the process or uh, do you usually show up after the event? I, I'm, I'm, open to ent entering the process to use your term at uh, at any time I obviously I prefer to I prefer to be on the preparation side mm -hmm. uh, but that is um, um, not always the uh, the case and I uh, uh, but I'm open to being if I can be of help after an event I'm I'm certainly available and willing to do that if I'm uh, you know, not on the other side of the world doing something else or whatever. Uh, I do some consulting virtually and and am also, you know, happy to do that. Uh, and then um, in the classroom, I, I work as hard as I can to uh, include some form of tabletop exercises in my coursework so that I'm giving students, and these are all at the graduate level, so they are adult learners, but... Mm -hmm. Uh, giving them some flavor of what considerations and decisions they would confront uh, if they were ever in a crisis management role, which, you know, sometimes uh, these things just happen to people and they look around and suddenly find themselves the uh, um, person at the head of the table or at the conference table they never expected to uh, to be at. And uh, and, and so that's uh, that's my attempt. That's what I try to do, Alexander. I, just in, in very general terms, what kinds of uh, organizations or clients you often work with? Well, I tend to keep that uh, pretty confidential, but I will work with uh, I will work with uh, government or private or corporate or non-governmental organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, I've worked with organizations of kind of all sizes and scales and types, and um, and will continue to do so um, because the. Um, the appetite to when when I'm fortunate enough to come across an organization or they've reached out to me that is interested in being more prepared mm -hmm. uh, that is that's very satisfying work to me personally mm -hmm. and, 
And so I'll do what I can to help them in their situation. And of course, every organization has different concerns, personalities, cultures, uh, priorities. Uh, some are quite uh, distributed, others are quite centralized, uh, all sorts of geographic settings, uh, so, uh, so, uh, so all types. Can you give us uh, just like a general sense also of what the basic steps are in the crisis management process? Well, there are a few, <clears throat> and even though every event is different, there are some common uh, steps that a an organization of any type really will kind of need to go through, uh, and I'll summarize those uh, in in very um, general terms. And I and I do have to give credit where credit is due. Uh, there have been some scholarly writings about. Mm -hmm. Uh, these subjects, and I would point people to uh, a very fine, thin little book called *The Politics of Crisis Management* uh, by a series of uh, professors. Uh, the lead author's name is Aryan Boyne, B-O-I-N. Uh, some of this material um, uh, that group of authors has suggested. Uh, the rest is is my own. Uh, experience and observation. So here we go. Five steps, uh, if you will, if you want to, you know, count them off on your fingers. Sure. Uh, the first step is, and this may seem obvious, but it's not, uh, is to figure out just what the hell is going on. Uh, because um, many large-scale events are multi, uh, have multiple elements. Uh, for example, a hurricane is going to have floods, it's going to have wind, it's going to have structural damage, it's going to have infrastructure damage, it's going to have uh, large uh, areas where uh, flight is not possible, it's going to have uh, power outages, and on and on and on. So um, figuring out what is going on is an essential and non-trivial uh, and an ongoing uh, task. Um, emergency managers in operation centers call this gaining situational awareness or mm -hmm. conducting area assessment, uh, but I prefer to just be a little bit more blunt and say figure out just what the hell is going on. Yeah. Try to understand in that step uh, what, is, what is most important, what is most critical, what is most serious, uh, what is the scale and uh, type of, uh, of event that you're dealing with? The second step uh, is to care for casualties uh, because there are going to be casualties. There are going to be um, the outright uh, uh, victims, perhaps fatalities or injured. And then there are going to be the uh, uh, psychologically in shock people who are, in fact, uh, emotional or psychological casualties. Uh, so there are always casualties of some type, nature, and scale, and you need to care for them. And if you haven't put plans in place or have insufficient uh, uh, personnel or whatever to do that, uh, that, that has to be the first response priority, to try to protect and save life. The third step is to establish a safe environment. Yeah. Um, that um, is a uh, may seem uh, obvious, but it's sometimes quite difficult to do, uh, simply because of access into a, uh, a crisis zone, 
um, if it is uh, in a conflict zone or if it's a um, uh, malicious kind of event, there may be things like secondary explosives. Uh, there can be uh, uh, other roving gunmen or whatever. Uh, so establishing a, spa- a safe environment is, is the third step to, uh, if you will, managing the overall event. The fourth step is to assemble resources. Uh, crises never occur where you have everything you need. You have to assemble resources and bring them to the crisis site. And those resources may be everything from pallets of bottled water to, um, to body bags to power generation to pumps to, un, un, to dewater areas uh, to structural materials to uh, uh, prop up buildings that are in danger of collapse or, or whatever it may be. You're going to have to assemble resources, so you might as well uh, plan for it. And then the fifth and final step is to restore services, and I define services as food, water, shelter, and power. Uh, you, um, uh, after an event, will almost inevitably be in a long recovery and rebuilding mode mm-hmm. uh, that could go on, well, for years. Uh, but the, the essentials are to get people fed and hydrated and out of whatever the weather may be, uh, get them safe and warm and dry and fed, and then some form of electrical power at some fundamental level because uh, with light comes security and with power comes communications. And in today's world, um, communications at the individual level is uh, critical. So those are my five steps. They're very, um, very generic and perhaps obvious, but they um, they strive to put a tent over all the things that must be done. Are there any special concerns for like maintaining organizational continuity or um, uh, it's like the, this sounds like it's a lot about physical. Uh, you know, just uh, security. Um, and I'm curious if, especially like, for example, in, in a corporate situation, like, uh, you know, uh, what the role is of, of uh, trying to maintain the, um, I don't know, I guess, organizational structure as the crisis is being passed through, you know? Cer- certainly. And that is, that's one of the areas that I, I try to focus on is the uh, organization, the con- I guess I should say the constitution of mm-hmm. and operation of an executive crisis team. In your example, a corporation, um, a, a corporate executive crisis team may be just half a dozen people, uh, but they are the, uh, the key people from various elements of the organization that are going to um, keep the organization, the corporation, uh, running through the duration of the event uh, insofar as they are able, assess whatever uh, damage may have occurred to the corporate uh, interests, uh, be it physical damage to structures, casualties to corporate employees, or anything of that nature, uh, and then um, restore business operations uh, with as uh, much uh, efficiency and effectiveness as is possible. There are some very uh, fine examples and also some very challenging examples of that in the in kind of corporate history. Uh, the most, uh, I think, dramatic is probably the example of Cantor Fitzgerald, the financial services firm 
in World Trade Center Tower One that was uh, hit very hard uh, uh, on 9/11, uh, lost uh, a, a staggering percentage of its personnel. Uh, but was able to uh, restore its operations mostly as a means of, uh, of uh, caring for their corporate family and also uh, as a means of uh, simply surviving a horrific event. Mm-hmm. So there, 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 are, there are certainly concerns there, uh, but, but yes, my list is, is if you will, um, designed for the use of the government emergency manager or the government authorities who would have to restore a situation that would involve many corporations or organizations. One of the things that uh, uh, I'm very interested in generally in in uh, uh, this topic is uh, some of the, you know, emotional biological responses and uh, and, and one thing that uh, that occurred to me is, you know, I've uh, uh, I, I hear a lot of, uh, uh, you know, focus on um being organized and doing what you can but i was also um uh i guess curious about like the the experience of being overwhelmed and uh what kind of response to uh is possible in the face of uh a threat that either appears overwhelming or feels overwhelming or seems like uh it's it's not possible to um uh, uh you know survive um, it, it was, there's uh, there's a lot of writing about that subject, and it's quite quite fascinating writing. And it is also um, not universally. Your question is not universally answered. Okay. And the reason for that is because um, we humans are all different. Uh, we humans, first of all, we all have a stress response. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all have an emotional response to uh, danger that dumps hormones into our system uh, in some combination to our individual blood chemistry and our individual brain chemistry. And the uh, reality is that no one can be 100% certain how they will react in a life-threatening situation, nor can anyone be completely certain how they will react in repetitive life-threatening situations because Mm -hmm. every situation is different. And the, uh, the, the stimulus and the response to that stimulus is different. But what, but what research has shown is that, uh, first of all, a strong will to survive mm-hmm. is, is essential yeah. in the sense that absent that, um, the odds against uh, surviving, say, a serious injury or a serious event uh, are greatly reduced. So a strong will to survive, a stubborn unwillingness to give up, uh, is an essential, if you want to use the term mindset, uh, to, uh, I guess, increasing the odds. Um, another thing that we pretty much know is that for some period of time, um, hopefully in the best cases measured in only seconds, uh, the the body and the brain will go through what some law enforcement people call the freeze, yeah. and it is it is that typically at least three seconds, maybe to five seconds is the shortest I've ever read about it occurring. Uh, so it's at least that uh, in which the 
basically the body is doing two things. It's trying to adapt to the new reality that is being confronted, whatever that may be. Uh, realize in a more conscious way that um, uh, life-threatening threat has occurred. Uh, and it's also just processing all those hormones in a, you know, kind of in a, in a chemical manner. Those two elements uh, together cause the freeze. And, and the, uh, the, the best that most um, students of this say you can do is, first of all, expect it. Uh, second, plan for what you will do after it passes in the um, uh, best way you can. And also know that if your will to survive and your prior preparation, whatever that may be, uh, can combine into a, um, I guess, a, a combination that gives you some confidence or some uh, belief that you've kind of done all you can, uh, that can give the individual a psychological foundation to maybe press on through some very difficult hours or even in some survival situations, days or weeks ahead. And there are some stories out there of some, you know, individuals who simply refused to give up and uh, survived things like, you know, walking out of the, uh, the bush after a plane crash and survived injuries in uh, wildland uh, uh, hiking incidents and so on, uh, simply because they just kept the faith and refused to give up and uh, did the best they could with each moment and uh, kept pressing on. Uh, but the uh, direct answer to your question of is there a, uh, you know, is there a formula out there that will answer all of these uncertainties? No, there's not. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. I have um, less of a security background than background in trauma studies, and uh, I hear a lot of uh, uh, overlaps between the, um, the, the, I don't know, studies and, and uh, explanations, especially um, uh, the freeze, you know, the, that moment of freezing is something that uh, you hear a lot about in um, uh, physical assaults. Uh, sure. instances sure. and it's something that also came up quite a bit in the Holocaust with uh, afterwards a lot of the rest of the world saying why didn't the Jews fight harder why did they just like submit uh, why did they just go you know submissively to death um, uh, but also the will to fight comes up in the um, also within the concentration camps with uh, they had a phenomena called the Musulman you know where someone uh, just gave up the will to live, and they, they the uh, the other uh, uh, prisoners said that they could, you know, see when someone went through that moment, and they knew they had maybe twenty four or forty eight hours left because they would just stop doing the ba taking the basic steps to uh, to continue to, to do what they needed to do to continue surviving. Um, but I'm curious: is there any uh, uh, research, or uh, uh, you know, do you do you know of anything that contributes to? Uh, um, what determines who has that will to fight or the will to survive and if it can be is it something you can increase in yourself um it's an unknown there yeah. is research there is research there are um substantial uh as you said holocaust holocaust studies uh about the uh, 
the the large scale um, situation that uh, that emerged there, uh, and I think that's a body of literature that is so substantial I can't mm-hmm. even begin to I can't even begin to encapsulate it. Um, and there's numerous theories uh, that that uh, go into what you were uh, alluding to uh, in in a in a more um, uh, general sense. Uh, this is the area of you know can you inc- what you're really asking is can you consciously increase your will to survive? Yeah. Nobody knows. As far as I can tell, there's some some pretty thoughtful books written about it. Uh, one of my favorites is called *The Unthinkable* by a very fine writer named Amanda Ripley. I would recommend that to anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's actually some relatively recent um, uh, survival books that have come out that I'm uh, actually getting hold of to read uh, right now that go into this uh, question uh, because it is a it is a question that. Uh, that has confounded scholars uh, and emergency managers uh, for quite some time, uh, but there's no decisive answer that I'm aware of right right now, um, and it is it is a uh, truth of the human condition that some individuals are just too damn ordinary to die. And other individuals are just too lazy to live. And we humans are a varied species. And the um, um, predictability of that or the preparation of that, insofar as I know, uh, is not determined. Um, so when I asked about that, that feeling of being overwhelmed, you mentioned um, stress. And I, I was wondering if uh, you have any um, anything to share about strategies for uh, anticipating stress, planning for it, and dealing with it when it happens. There are um, some who have contended that uh, mindfulness meditation and yoga and other mindfulness exercises, deep breathing, for example, are are good for uh, stress preparation and uh, focus. Uh, there have been some uh, uh, members of the military, U.S. military special operations community, who have adopted those uh, techniques and who uh, contend that they are they are helpful, especially the deep breathing exercises. That um, if if you can train yourself prior to, and it's difficult, but if you can train yourself prior to it, to uh, really getting into a very stressful situation, if you can kind of see it coming, and you can cause yourself to just breathe deeply in and out a number of times, um, the, uh, the individuals who uh, advocate this approach uh, say that that will immediately improve your your responses that it will help to focus the mind that it will increase the oxygen to the brain that it will it will cause you to uh, push aside uh, other uh, less important considerations 
And so that is that is a technique that some have uh, have tried. Um, the um, in my in my own experience, I've not I've not been in a personal situation where I can say that I you know tried that and used that. Uh, so I can't either advocate for it or criticize it from a personal you know knowledge level. Uh, but there are some individuals out there who are uh, who are fans of it. And you mentioned uh, just briefly, like visualizing the situation. Is that something that people suggest might have some uh, contribute to in some way positively, like just visualizing crisis and imagining how you might respond in the situation? I I think so from two perspectives. Mm -hmm. First of first of all, um, there's a substantial body of evidence that visualization uh, of um, complex sports activities, for example, by elite, by elite athletes is a very, uh, uh, a very sound way to prepare for high-consequence sporting events. So there is uh, a, a pretty good body of literature about that, that visualization helps. As far as in a crisis preparation setting, it, it's, it's important to take it from, I think, two perspectives. First, yes, it's helpful, because if you, can, if you can not only envision, if you will, the bad day or the worst day, and then what your initial responses would need to be, then you are having that mental dialogue with yourself and maybe with others uh, in advance, and in and of itself, that is sound groundwork you're not going to be having that conversation with yourself when you know literally the water is rising mm -hmm. you've had that conversation with yourself so that's good now the cautionary is that in things like to put a uh, glamorous title on it scenario planning what you're what you're doing in this visualization is you're you're envisioning a scenario right so in things like scenario planning, it is important to recognize that it is only a scenario and reality will almost certainly be different. Mm -hmm. And so it's important, if, for example, in a formal exercise series of any sort or whatever, to, to always keep that in mind. The scenario is to be instructive, it's to stimulate uh, thought and maybe dialogue if it's in a group setting. Uh, but recognize that that was in the visualization stage and reality will in some fashion or another be different and so adapting to that new reality as it unfolds uh, is is very important you know I'm just I'm just speculating but as I'm like sitting here and listening I'm also imagining that like it might not actually be so helpful if you're just like imagining this crisis situation where you're like I'm just going to swoop in and save everybody and uh you know I'm going to look so great and <laughs> you know like not realistically making actual plans but just imagining you know uh, how great you might look and that like that that might actually like make it worse if you find yourself in the situation uh and it's a surprise that you actually are panicking or uh um you know don't have the uh superpowers you imagined it's um, it's a bummer to find out that your garage is not full of Iron Man suits, right? Right. <laughs> um, so I, I heard you uh, uh, speak briefly on, on another video on YouTube about the role of the amygdala in that fight or flight 
response in crisis. And I thought that was really interesting. And I was wondering if you could uh, fill us in a little bit. Well, the amygdala is a uh, small part of our brain that we uh, we all carry around. Uh, it's about the size of a of an almond. It's in the front of our brain, and it is the um, uh, subconscious assessor of our surroundings, and it's what this, uh, some individuals call it the crocodile brain, mm-hmm. because it assesses change, and it. And it says at the subconscious level, fight, flight, or mate, essentially. Okay. And then it triggers the combination of hormones that will come through your system. Um, And the amygdala is working all the time. Uh, It never really takes a break. And it is, um, again, subconscious. So it it is what leads to that uh, that, uh, freeze response. Uh, it is also um, the part of your of your brain that is scanning even relatively benign situations. So an example is if you're going to give a presentation to a room full of people, you know, when you first walk out on stage, your amygdala is is what is looking at that room full of people and deciding in a split second completely subconsciously uh, whether there's something there to be afraid of or not and uh, will will send the the cocktail of hormones through your system based on what it decides uh, so it doesn't have to be a life-threatening situation it can be a new social situation a new you know a job interview it can be a new mm-hmm. uh, uh, setting where you're uh, uncertain about, you know, you're on an airplane and it's uncertain as to exactly where your seat is and, you know, people are bustling around. Your amygdala is is constantly um, uh, evaluating uh, that kind of a uh, new set of surroundings. So it's it's worth knowing it's there and it's worth knowing what it does. And then it's worth knowing that uh, when your conscious mind takes over, uh, it will have been in receipt of that cocktail, mm-hmm. and uh, your conscious mind will need to uh, work with whatever the situation is, the new presentation in front of the auditorium of people, the new social situation, whatever it might be, uh, with, uh, with the deliberate and conscious choices uh, inside that, uh, that emotional hormone dump. Um. It's uh, uh, it's interesting you mentioned the uh, situation of uh, public speaking because um, uh, it, it occurred to me that there are uh, uh, one treatment method for phobias in general, like because public speaking is a is a very common one, but um, there can be all kinds of things. You know, people even just being afraid of spiders. Uh, uh, that one treatment method is uh, uh, gradual exposure, where rather than just like throwing someone, if you put someone up on the stage every single time they're going to have, like if they have the panic response, they're going to panic. But if you work them up very, very, very slowly, you know, uh, in small ways, uh, over time, you know, it's possible to overcome that uh, automatic response of panic in that particular situation for people who, uh, who, have, who have it. I mean, it just uh, struck me as uh, something relevant from that uh, uh, public speaking example that... Uh, Oh. I've I've heard of some of those techniques. I'm yeah. not really you know qualified to comment on their effectiveness, but uh, but I've heard of some of those techniques and and that idea of if you want to use the 
informal term of, of stair-stepping into your, uh, your fear, your phobia, whatever, mm-hmm. is, a, you know, is something that uh, training programs do um, in all sorts of different ways and in all sorts of different settings. So there, is, you know, there are some practices out there in all, in all kinds of walks of life that take that approach. Um, and, you know, with some success in some settings and less success in others. Um, and while we're on the subject of uh, anxiety and panic, uh, I'm curious if, is that something that you can prepare for? Is that something that uh, um, uh, it's possible to know ahead of time? Like if a crisis happens, there is going to be anxiety and panic and, and you know, what do you do about well, it? Well, sure. You can, in the sense that you can be aware it's going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's going to happen in without regard to your uh, your job position. You can be a very highly compensated and well-known celebrity CEO, but you know if your corporate headquarters starts to collapse in an earthquake, you're going to be terrified. Yeah, it, it's simple as that. And there is. Um, um, value in knowing, remembering maybe, that you're human and you will, um, you will experience degrees of uh, anguish and terror when bad things happen, depending on your proximity to the event, depending on the shock of the event, depending on your personal psychological and physical makeup as to how um, uh, incapacitating it may be. Uh, there are numer- there are examples of uh, quite distinguished leaders who, for a variety of uh, basically unknown reasons, uh, froze in the face of uh, of great uh, great stress and emergency. There are also, of course, numerous examples of leaders who uh, who just powered through it. It doesn't mean that they weren't feeling the same uh, emotions. It just means that for of some unknown variety of reasons they were able to power through it. Mm-hmm. And so um, the, the important thing is to recognize it will happen to you and then uh, be aware that um, if, if possible, your responsibilities to yourself and to your loved ones and to your organization uh, may assist you to uh, survive the event give you that extra drive to survive and to uh, hopefully be of help to others. Um, so uh, if, um, you, you mentioned also earlier the, uh, the phrase situational awareness and um, uh, I've heard about, and I think I've uh, also heard you uh, speak briefly on some videos about uh, like situational awareness and mindfulness exercises that you can do about just becoming aware of your environment. And I was wondering if you could tell us about what that is and uh, what its value is. Well, the, the value is, is perhaps self-evident, but it is also in this era a, I have to say, a declining, uh, a declining art. The, the value is that if you are aware in what is going on around you, you are, first of all, going to be more interactive with other humans, which is a good yeah. thing, I would argue. And also, you're going to be more likely to not only spot threats, but spot the good things of life, right? You yeah. know, there's a lot of good things in life, and 
we don't spend that much time on this uh, rock in space, so you, uh, you probably ought to be uh, kind of taking it in. Our current culture, certainly in the developed world, however, is uh, fixated on our uh, handheld devices and our phone screens. And um, I wish I had a dollar for every person that I have seen in central Washington, D.C., walking down the street, staring at their phone. And um, um, in some ways, uh, putting themselves at risk, you know, walking across track, staring at their phone and, you know, ignoring everything about them and all that. Um, So I think situational awareness is critical for life appreciation reasons and survival reasons. And I also think it is becoming... Uh, a uh, harder and harder dynamic to persuade people of its value. Um, so, okay, that said, um, situational awareness is is a phrase that is um, probably best thought of as mindfulness. It's about being awake to your surroundings. It's about not being mentally somewhere else. It's about being cognizant of what is happening around you, which may be fascinating or it may be boring, but either way, you're cognizant of it. So you asked about exercises. The classic exercise, and it's been written about numerous times and uh, um, uh, been uh, put on websites and all of that, uh, is something called Kim's Game. Um, it refers to a classic novel by Rudyard Kipling, written, I think, in 1885, uh, about a, uh, a young uh, biracial teenage boy in the British Raj, India, uh, who was trained uh, by the British intelligence services to become a spy. And one of the methods that they used to train him has become known as Kim's Game. And in the novel, it is described as uh, a uh, showing the, uh, the young boy uh, a tray of objects for a very brief period of time and then ha- covering that tray of objects and having him describe um, the number and types of objects from just having seen it for a very few seconds. And then uh, to increase his uh, powers of observation and memory, uh, over time, they gradually uh, shortened the time and increased the number of objects in the tray. Uh, and in this uh, method, uh, helped him to um, be able to take in cognitively what he was seeing very quickly and then be able to describe it. Some of these same techniques are linked to some of the speed reading courses that mm. you may have heard of, which uh, which talk about, um, and whether they're effective or not, I, I can't begin to judge, but, but which talk about this notion that the, um, the mind as almost a camera can take in a visual image uh, very quickly, um, and then uh, later on uh, re-access that, that visual image. So whether you buy into that, that corollary or not, uh, it is possible to increase your um, cognitive awareness, your situational awareness, uh, by basically playing Kim's game in the here and now. And I urge some of my students to give it a try. You know, next time you go to the local supermarket, 
Um, ask yourself questions like when you're standing in line, okay, how many people here are wearing glasses? How many men? How many women? How many children? How many people are wearing socks? How many people are wearing brown shirts? Um, only as a way of, um, of triggering yourself to notice things. And if you do that enough, you will find that, and you're mindful about it, you will find that your awareness of your surroundings will gradually increase. And of course, it's not important how many men or how many women are in the checkout line. That's completely unimportant. What is important is that you're going through a, a wakeful exercise of taking in your surroundings and more or less uh, quizzing yourself on what you are seeing. So in an emergency situation, situational awareness can be pretty valuable. Certainly if you're being physically threatened by, uh, uh, by, by uh, you know, groups of people with guns, uh, or if there's uh, 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 an unfolding situation like an incoming flood, a storm surge, or a collapsing building, being aware of your surroundings is, uh, is a skill that can be pretty useful. Uh, later on, if you're trying to describe to rescuers, you know, the last place you saw someone, for example, or uh, the last uh, time you were in a room, how many people were there, um, all of those kinds of, uh, of uh, tricks can be, can be useful. Um, there's also, this is a little bit of a side note, but in, in this general subject area, uh, there are um, such things as... Uh, memory competitions and a uh, really interesting book about the world memory competition uh, is called uh, Moonwalking with Einstein mm -hmm. and, um, and it refers to a technique called a memory palace which I will uh, mm -hmm. not attempt to preview here in this uh, particular uh, podcast but it's a fun book and I would urge people to read it uh, because it is um, uh, astonishing how much one can remember if you are um, teaching yourself how to do that and there are a number of techniques in which that can be uh, can be accomplished and they are linked to this idea of Kim's gain and situational awareness uh, because once again you're just you're getting your eyes off your phone you're looking at what's happening around you uh, for your own purposes and maybe to help someone else uh, in the future well, and I like that you also uh, uh, at the beginning, you know, uh, uh, mentioned that uh, it can also just enhance the quality of your life, and then that you're not just looking for uh, threats or uh, um, uh, you know uh, dangers in the environment, but also the the beauty and the uh, <laughs> uh, you know the, that's, some... that's the real reason to do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Appreciate the beauty because uh, we're not here long enough. Um, so one of the last questions I had for you was about, uh, it, it just related to crisis management. Like what are some of the <laughs> harder lessons of, from the past? What are, um, what have we, you know, learned the hard way about, um, preparing well, for, would, for, would, for the worst, for the bad day? Yeah. Well, I would, I would say just a couple of, a couple of things. Uh -huh. Um, again, very general, but hopefully applicable in a lot of different settings um planning is not preparation mm -hmm. planning is planning preparation is preparation you need to do both and what i'm saying there is it is important to plan it's critical to plan 
but don't stop there. You know, a plan is just a binder on a shelf or a file on a computer. Um, the classic example where that uh, uh, really had a bad outcome was a planning exercise, an exercise called Hurricane Am that was conducted in New Orleans um, about a year, a little less than a year prior to Hurricane Katrina. And in that planning exercise, many of the things that uh, cost lives a year later uh, were identified. But then the binder sat on the shelf. Great plan, but nothing was done to actually prepare from the fruits of that plan. So uh, remember you need to do both. Uh, the second thing I would say is that your regardless of your role, whether you have a professional responsibility for an organization or not, um, or if you're just you know a, um, an employee or a soldier in the ranks or whatever your role in life, um, your individual concerns and survival uh, considerations matter as a priority. So this is that whole philosophy, uh, like in airplane briefings, put on your own oxygen mask first. Uh -huh. You're not going to be able to help anybody else if you're not ready to a certain degree yourself and if you don't survive yourself. Right. So, uh, so individual concerns matter. Put on your own oxygen mask first. The final thing I would, I would say is it is, it is worth thinking through what are your primary personal considerations? By that, I, and, and I always advise people to think in terms of three, simply because we seem to be able to carry around a list of three pretty easily in our heads, but after that, it starts to you know, get murky. So I tell people, think about your own first three primary concerns. If the earthquake happened today, what are the most important three things you would want to do as a primary response. Get those in your head because they may actually be, be what you trigger to after that moment of freeze. You remember, okay, I remember my most important thing is to get my elderly loved one out of the basement. That was my most important, whatever it is. You know, whatever your first three most important primary considerations are, uh, have those in your mind. And those will not only give you peace of mind to a degree because you thought them through, but it'll also give you a, um, a starter list, you know, and you won't have to put it together on the fly, you know, when the earth starts to shake and the buildings start to come down. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever those considerations might be, it's worth kind of thinking through. So those are, those are, if you want to call them hard lessons, I don't know if they're hard lessons, but those are observations that I've collected in talking with people and reading and, uh, and some personal experience, and I would uh, offer them up for consideration. Great. So is there uh, anything I didn't ask you about or anything else you wanted to mention? that? Uh... <laughs> Just... Um, Live your life well, people, yeah. because it, however long it is, it's too short. And uh, hug a loved one, and uh, if a bad day happens, decide to survive. Wow. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to sit and talk with me and my friends. <laughs>
it's been a pleasure, Alexander. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. All the best to you and all that you do. Eight, zero, eight, four, one, nine, eight, end.